Hi, welcome to the Cork Church Podcast. We're very glad you're joining us today and we hope this message inspires you, builds your faith and encourages you in the things of God. Enjoy the message. lovely to have you in and I'm particularly delighted to see my grandchildren in after months and months and months my wonderful grandchildren are all in the house of God this morning so I thank God for that and uh, may your children too have a confidence to come back and worship here as we await the coming of the Lord amen, amen. praise God Jerry thank you for that because I was only thinking I'm finishing a I'm just bringing a message this morning. It's a part four message and, um, on the new covenant. And um, as I was meditating on it during the week, I think I do more meditating than studying. Uh, it's a subject I love anyhow, so it's, it's not that I have to mine up much more. Uh, then again, here, there go I. There's so much more that I don't know in this. But for, for the bite sizes that I can share with you this morning, but I was meditating on, on, on the new covenant and the gospel. What is the gospel? What makes it good? What makes it good news? Why should someone come to church? Why should they listen to us? What is it that we have on offer? Because we do teas and coffees afterwards. I mean, that'll bore you after a while. And, um, but it's because we, 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 we have only one name, and it's the name of Jesus. And uh, I was thinking about when I, when I taught this subject to pastors all over the world now, actually thousands, I would say, of pastors that we've taught the New Covenant to in Africa and India, United States, around the Latvia and in Switzerland, France, all those parts of the world. I, I was thinking that when, normally when, we, when I talk to pastors and talk about the New Covenant and teaching the New Covenant, <clears throat> I always tell them to lens everything in the person of Christ and you will never go wrong. So when I, when I ask another preacher, what are you preaching on? If he says, I'm preaching about David, well, you don't need to listen to him. You, every pastor should answer you with the same message. What, if they ask you the message, what are you preaching this morning, pastor? I'm preaching about Jesus. I just happen to be taking the David route, but everything leads to Christ. Think about that for a moment. And no matter how long you've been a Christian, every storyline in the Bible, every... every allegory, every typology, every prophecy, all leads to Christ. Uh, it's, it's quite epic, so something needs to drop into our hearts of the importance of the new covenant because it is God's lensing or God's focusing onto one portion of time, one period of history that changed all of time to come after that. And that was the cross of Christ, of course. Now, we started a number of weeks ago. Um, I, I thought I preached a message here. And if you, if you have time, if you haven't been in for those, they do actually run into each other on, on a level in the New Covenant. Some people are watching. Actually, I was at a funeral on, a, on a Thursday, I think it was. Um, we had to bury our dear brother, George Kingston. Um, some of you won't know George because he was a quite mild-mannered man that would come in, sit around third, fourth row, five, fifth row with his wife, 
older couple. Uh, she would always wear the head covering. They were of a generation of faith mission people. George has been coming to church for many, many years. Loved the Lord. Godly, godly, godly man. And so, uh, you know, I was there and I was asked to share at the, the gravesite. And it was an honor for me to do that. So for those of you who, uh, who are thinking, what happened to that dear old couple? Well, she died 16 weeks earlier. And he died just last Sunday, actually. He died and, um, and then went. We committed him as an act of faith into the earth, knowing that God is going to raise him from the dead. Amen. So these words, are not, they may, these words may be lost in some people. We believe that when we put you into the ground, God's going to raise you up. Amen. Amen. Might be lost in, on the naysayers, but I say yes. Amen. I am the resurrection and the life. And uh, one of the people there said, oh, I, I, heard that you, I see that you're doing a teaching on the New Covenant. So it's going out there. And the reason I want you who are listening or watching this morning, maybe you've missed some of the messages. A number of weeks ago, on the back of the Easter week, and that's a few weeks back now because we've gone past Pentecost even 50 days after the Passover. Uh, the Lord stirred my heart when Jesus said out those words, this is the blood of the New Covenant. It, this is the New Covenant in my blood. And it just really impacted me because we'd come through Passover, we'd come through the exaltation of one way, of, the acclamation of Christ to the, to the abysmal denial of him and crucifixion of him all within five days. The, 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 you know, the, the will of the people is so changeable. People, we're very changeable. You know, you, you could be knees up today in church and tomorrow down in, down in, the, down in the dumps because of our, our fallen DNA and our fallen natures. Uh, and yet the people turned their back. So we went through all that journey as a church. It was an epic time to go through. And we always remember this because I'm trying to teach you as we go along. Um, you know, when you read your New Testament, your, sorry, your Gospels, you know, 58, 60% of those Gospels are the last three weeks of Jesus' life. It's amazing. It's like it's zoning in. And it's like, it's like all of history before that is coming into this focal point. It's, it's coming in. It's, it's coming from the edges. And, and history is there, friends. It's, it's his story. It's his story of bringing us to a place of his promised salvation and his promised rest. And so I, I, I preached a, a message called the Ninth Blood Group because there was something very wonderful about the blood of Jesus. And God said he paid for us with his blood. It's a heavenly blood. And then there's another, another message con- called Concealed and Revealed. And then there's a third called The Mystery Hid from Ages. And this, this morning, I just want to finish off with a fourth message on this. This is a very wide topic. Uh, my desire is that what I know of the New Covenant that I can pass on to you. And if you know it already, I'm delighted. Uh, you sit back and just enjoy these truths because I know when I sit down as a congregant in any congregation and hear anybody lift up Jesus in the covenant of grace, even though I know it, I can nearly predict the next verse, the next line. It, it, it thrills my soul. It thrills me again. You're right, Andy. Again and again because I begin to see... You know, you know, when you think about that, the hymn writer, when he wrote that hymn, Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. And so for me as a Christian, my eyes come off my own woes, my own failures, self-deprivation, attitudes towards others or myself. And when I hear about Christ, all of a sudden I'm, I'm gazing away from the strife of this world and I begin to gaze into the Son of God, into the beautiful face of Jesus, and something is diffused into my spirit every time. So that's the background of this morning's message. The New Covenant. How shall we escape? Hebrews chapter 2 says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? 
I'm going to say the word again, great salvation. Actually, say it with me this morning. Great salvation. Not with the perishable things of silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, Peter tells us. A lamb without blemish or defect. Even the sincerest among us will struggle with the new covenant. Those who sincerely even desire to please God will stumble with the new covenant. It's a rock of stumbling and a rock of offense, the apostle Peter writes to us. There's something about the new covenant that thrills us and terrifies us all in the one breath. There's something about the love of God which is incredibly inspiring to us, but also unnerves us. And I want to take you to a journey in a few moments of, of, of men who had to come to those crossroads. Because when we talk about God's love, when we talk about God's grace, friends, we are talking about something that is so overarching that if it, if it wasn't true, then I put it to you that salvation would be an impossibility. It would be impossible for us through the workings of the law or keeping religious um, in steps with, with the teachings and commandments, that none of those things would be able to bring us into a place of righteousness before God. Peter, as I said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. That's what he talked about Christ. He said they stumble because they disobeyed the message. So what is the message? What is salvation? What is the good news? Because that's what the gospel means, good news. That's what it literally means, good news. And why does it provoke us to, to respond in so many different ways? And there are defining moments when the gospel of Christ challenges all our preconceived ideas as to what salvation is. There's moments, friends, that whatever you think salvation is, you may be right, you may be wrong, but it matters not what you think, is what the Bible says. Amen. And so when we begin to see what the plan is, and we begin to, then we have to alter thinking. We have to course correct. We have to start coming in line with what God says. And when we come in in line and in agreement with God, then the blessings of the covenant of grace begin to flow into our life. And so instead of resisting and holding back and, and second-guessing God's love for you, I mean, some of you this morning listening, you're like the, you're like the reluctant bride Always coming to the altar and running away when you see the bridegroom coming. You know, that, and, and, and the grace of God goes out to you and it's this, this sense of either I'm not worthy or this sense of it's too good to be true. But friends, it is true. He loves you. In actual fact, when we even say those words, I think I said it last week, it's worth saying again. Even when we say that he loves me, Jesus loves me, this I know. Remember that, Andy? I said sometimes the most simple truths of the universe are spoken by those who are dimly aware of its true power or meaning the depth of those things jesus loving me does that alone friends jesus loving me how can he really love me you know what you're like you, you know when the when the spotlight is off you and when the shadows come you know what your attitudes develop like you know what your thinking goes like and yet he sees you and he knows you and he loves you it stumbles us all. How can he really love me? How can he? When I don't even love myself. When I'm honest and I look at it, I feel I'm just, I, I just deserve judgment. 
And all these things. And, and so even the love of God. I'm not even talking about that this morning, friends. But I want you to examine. Sometimes we as Christians, we just parrot out phrases without a little understanding of the depth of those truths and how they can actually touch our very souls. And the reality of it, friends, is that it is a truth from heaven, from God's old lips to you that he loves you. We see that stumbling happening in John 6. You don't need to turn there. That's not my, my passage this morning. John 6 is a great chapter. Jesus is teaching and preaching. And, you know, but he starts to say things. And people became offended with him, it says. And they departed from him. Those ones were those 70 disciples that he sent out two by two. And Jesus begins to talk to them about himself. That it was his body, his blood. It was his work, his miracles, his power. And they became offended. And the reason they became offended is because they thought, well, we understand, Jesus, you're a major component here, but I bought something to the table. And Jesus was saying, no, no, you bring nothing to the table. You know, we talk about songs like, I was sinking deep in sin, never to rise no more. Sorry, friends, it's actually wrong. You were sunk. I was dying in my sins. No, no, no. You got it way wrong. You were dead in your sins. You just didn't realize how dead you were. You just didn't realize how far you were. You just didn't realize how sick you were. You just didn't realize how unlovely you were. You still think there's something in you that can curry the, the, you know, and, and, and be redeemed and, and, and be lifted up on its own virtue. And it became offended from him. The gospel is a gospel of offense. It offends something inside. It offends our pride. It offends the very nature that Adam put into us way back in the garden. That somehow I have the all with all within me to be able to right my wrongs. And stand in cooperation with God's grace. No friends, it's not even about you cooperating. I love, though, in chapter 6, because there's a robust Peter says, when Jesus said, are you also going to go away from me? Are you also going to leave me? He says, Lord, who are we going to go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I don't fully understand it, God. I don't fully understand how you could love me. I don't fully understand how it works. And that's where most of us are at. I don't fully understand, but I know these are eternal life words, and these are true. And you might be sitting here, so I don't know all the mechanics of the of the legalities of why I'm, I am accepted in God, but I'm purely accepting it by faith. That's the way to live, friends. But as you walk in that faith, the illumination of his word brings light and liberty and joy into your life and brings confidence into your Christian experience. And that's where God wants to, you to go, to leave the sort of elementary areas of just strolling in the shallow waters of the gospel and going into the, dip, the depths of his truth and going into the depths of relationship. That's what Ezekiel's journey was all about, friends. Ezekiel's journey was to leave the shallow areas it's lovely to be a shallow Christian and all we, we just say oh praise God I'm saved I come on a Sunday morning pay my tithe get on with my life and just everything is good and happy no friends that's shallow sometimes you need to sink into the depths of the ocean instead of skipping over the ocean like a stone to go into the depth of God and I believe as you begin to understand and open yourself up to the covenant of his grace God will do something mighty in your life because he wants to do something mighty in your life the letting go of self-belief, the letting go of myself being able to help myself, myself being able to redeem myself. And there's a major, there's a major amazing passage in Scripture. I've, I've preached this to you 
but it needs to be preached again. This book is a book that constantly tells us the same storylines all the time until something begins to illuminate our very soul. And so Christ, the exception to the rule, the sinless one, the awaited plan, the awaited seed of Genesis, through prophecy, the work now in God's eyes had been accomplished. Man had the revelation of God for thousands of years, had been given the law of God for thousands of years. And every generation, of course, tried to rise up to the challenge of, of putting themselves up by their spiritual bootstraps and presenting themselves and dusting themselves off and standing before God in their own strength. And of course, I looked for a man among them that could stand in that gap. And I found none, but we find only one, and his name is Jesus. Hallelujah. And so I want to bring you to a chapter to close out the New Covenant, because I can't, I can't backdate all the last three, four messages on this view. You're just going to have to go listen if you've got a heart for truth. But there's something going on in the life of Christ that Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. All of a sudden, when you begin to read the Gospels and you begin to read the emphasis, they move from an Old Testament concept. The Old Testament concept was always about me in a working relationship with God, me in a covenant relationship with God. I have to subscribe to certain uh, truths, first of all, but actions and works. And so basically, the Old Covenant was all about you working for your salvation. It was a salvation of works. It was a, a, met, a, meteor, a meteorocracy. You, 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 you merited the, the, the grace of God by how well you behaved. And so, you know, of course, people like that to a level. That's why religion is so successful because religion will dangle in front of you if you can do these rituals, if you bless yourself going by the church, if you drop some money into the old folks box, if you buy the odd mask card, if you do this and you do that and you do your rituals and say you're no Venus and your glory bees and all that sort of stuff, that somehow you can kind of rise up in the ability to stand in the presence of God. But the reality is that even those who try it, friends, end up being empty, because there's no life in it. There's no life in it. The only thing that can produce in you is spiritual pride. And yet you don't know God. But you're better than the guy next to you because he doesn't do it. And better than her because I, I never see them in church. Or I never see, see them down the temple or whatever it may be. Whatever religion it is. And so the same thing. So th- th- this is a story in Matthew's gospel. And I want to give you the background of it. These are, the background of the story is that Jesus is calling Matthew the tax collector. And he's, he, is, he is God. He is the Messiah. And he is going to tax collectors and sinners, publicans, people that are far from God. No, no self-respecting rabbi would hang around with such people. You know, this, and, and all the way through Jesus' message, it's the sick that need the doctor, you know. And so he goes to the worst of sinners. And, 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 and at this stage in, in, in the Bible, John the Baptist is now imprisoned, right, awaiting to be executed. And his disciples are kind of rudderless. They saw John as the great revivalist. He's been preaching. He defied Herod. He stood and called him, you know, all these sort of names, stealing your, your, your brother's wife and your murderer and your, all these sort of, and ends up, uh, for calling out Herod, he ends up in the prison. And Herod, of course, is very convicted of his sin, but his wife and his daughter, of course, conspired to get the head of Herod. But you can imagine the environment for these young disciples. They're now, they've been sitting under John the Baptist, a preacher of, you know, of repentance to the nation of Israel. And now John is on death row or possibly even dead at this stage. And these disciples have nowhere to go. These are disciples that, you know, that were, if you wanted to say, 
if you want to put them up against a purity test as regards to how compliant they were to the law and the, and the laws of Moses and their lifestyle. They, I mean, they wore the camel hair, you know, they, 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 they did the fasting, you know, they, li- they lived in med- very meager surroundings and they were the sort of purest of the Jewish people at that time, showing forth this sort of high religious living. It would have been like the monastics of ancient times, you know, sleeping on slabs, you know, living in drafty rooms and beating themselves or denying themselves, you know, in this sense of, in this hope of, you know, you know, provoking God's love to them, you know, that somehow that one more whip would, would bring God's love upon them. One more spiritual treadmill would make them more attractive to God. And yet there was a purity in these disciples. There was a purity in John the Baptist. They were used by God in many ways. And now they're rudderless. They don't know where to go, but they know Jesus because John baptized Jesus in the Jordan. They would have been there when John said to the, to, to everybody, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so they would have naturally gravitated then. Well, John's in prison. We need spiritual direction. And now they're coming to Jesus. But they have an awful lot of baggage. And they have an awful lot of thinking that is not quite correct, like all of us, when we come to God. We, there's a lot of stuff. So Matthew chapter 9, verses, verse 9, if I have a Bible. And Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he rose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard that. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, but go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, and the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. It's very interesting, the answer he gave them. Uh, You know, and you've heard me share this passage to you. I I, I like to kind of get the mentality. These young disciples of John have a respect for Jesus. They They do revere him. They don't quite understand the message yet, but they do revere him. But they see Jesus picking heads of corn on the Sabbath. They see Jesus not going through the same ceremonial hand washing. They see Jesus healing sick people on the Sabbath, walking on the Sabbath, beyond the Sabbath day's journey. They see many of these things, and they can't equate it. And of course, they're trying to inquire, because there's a liberty in Jesus that they don't know, should he have this liberty? Or should anybody have this liberty? Yeah, should someone live so free of the law you know, that's upon them, that was given by Moses back on Mount Sinai? And so they come, and, 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 and you know, they ask him, I, I can only... It's only conjecture, but I, I, I believe I'm right. I believe they would have come in a sort of clever manner, in, 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 a, in a kindly manner. Uh, much as some people who come to me at times, there's another meaning in what they're asking. You understand? And so why is it that we 
and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples don't. Really what they wanted to ask him, Tony, was this, why aren't you fasting? But of course, it's a nice way to kind of not upset the relationship. They're really challenging his liberty because uh, it's, it's his liberty that the disciples are living out. It's his mentoring. And so there's this, there's, but there's a sincerity in it. They're stuck. They can't quite understand that, you, you know, to be walking as a righteous man or a woman, that you cannot do it outside of the law. And so they believed that you had to live according to the laws that God gave Moses. And without living according to those laws, you cannot bring the favor of God into your life. And why is it that, and basically Jesus, the nice way, why aren't you fasting? Why don't you fast often? And then Jesus gives them this answer that sometimes you can read over and many people read over because Jesus is challenging something. Remember, we're talking about a new covenant versus an old covenant, okay? And so Jesus talks about the bridegroom being there, which is him. You know, when he's there, first of all, you know, nobody mourns when he's around. You know, nobody needs to fast. There will come a time when my disciples will fast because I'll be taken to heaven and fasting and prayer will be part of the Christian journey. But he's on about the, when the liberty of his presence, of course, there is fullness of joy. And then he says, nobody takes a, a, a new piece of cloth and puts the patch on an old garment. No, and so their, 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 their clocks are beginning to move this way. Because they are stumbled at the liberty of Christ. And Jesus is saying to them, you don't take a new piece of cloth and you put it on an old tear on your clothing. And of course, anybody here that knows what that means, you know, most people don't know what that means because you didn't grow up in the 60s or 70s or 80s where patching your jeans was the order of the day. You know, in actual fact, you know, the more patches back in the 70s you had in your jeans, the cooler you were. So you had all these different color patches on your jeans. But you could not put a, new, a newer piece onto an older piece because when it went into the wash, it shrunk and it tore. And that's what happens. You don't take a new piece of cloth and put it on to an old garment. Now, so what, is Jesus just talking how to patch your jeans properly here? Or what's he saying to them? Is he just kind of giving them a, a lesson on, you know, you know, good housekeeping, how to sew your own new jeans, as the song goes, you know? Or is he saying something deeper to them? And he said, nobody takes new wine and puts it into old wineskins. Wine because the old wineskins... The new wine is going to start to immediately expand. It's going to start to ferment. And it's going to start expanding. And those, that wineskin has already expanded to the most. The old wineskin has already gone through a process with previous wine. And now it's at its limits. So now you fill it with new wine. And it starts to ferment. It'll start to expand. He said, you don't do that. You don't take you know, new wine and put it into new wineskins because it's going to burst the wineskin. And that's what's going to happen. It's going to burst it. And he's, you know, and basically he's beginning to show them, first of all, I'm not the missing piece that you put onto your religion. Because, you see, what the Jews were looking for, they wanted to keep all the 613 laws or the Ten Commandments, and they wanted to have a Messiah that they just added to that. So, you know, I'll have Jesus and I'll have a bit of my religion. I'll have Jesus and I'll have this. So, Jesus, that's fantastic. Look at everything I bring to the table. And let's just bring you on side with that. 
And that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is coming against their mentality of holding on to an old covenant that they, by somehow, by virtue of their good sort of Christian and their, uh, their good Jewish mentalities and observance to the law of God, that they all they need is Je- a bit of Jesus on top of it. He becomes a collectible. Many people today use the, Jesus the same way. Jesus is just a collectible. He's a piece of their life. Oh, he's the missing piece. Life without Jesus is like a donut. There's a hole in the middle of your heart. Well, I think it's a cute song. But I want to tell you, friends, it's not just a piece. Do you understand? You, you know, it's not, I, I have, I, I just, I'm so complete, but I just missed this one piece in my life. No, you're not complete. In actual fact, you're more messed up than what you care to admit. And if you don't believe me now, leave, leave, live another 10 years if you have it, and you'll come back and say, you're absolutely right. Depraved and broken. It's not a piece of Christ we want, friends. It's not that we just take him and add him to all our endeavor. That's what religion does. Religion is all your religious endeavor, and then you bring Jesus on board. He's the missing piece, and this is what they were looking for. They wanted to, they wanted to exercise this religious um, discipline. They were disciplined men. To be, a, far, to, to be a, a disciple of John the Baptist, you were a disciplined guy. You ate the right food. You did the right religious practices. You lived in very meager surroundings, as I said. It wasn't attractive, but somehow, you know, it was viewed upon as being holy. Oh, he's very holy. Even his clothes are holy. And even his house is holy and the roof is holy. There's water coming in, so poverty is piety. Spirituality. And so the stripping of oh, and all these adherences. And of course, Jesus in the new covenant begins to put a missile through that concept. I'm not the missing piece. I'm not a collectible. It's not that there's a hole in the middle of your heart. Your heart is completely dead. You need a whole new heart. Hallelujah. He said, you don't take new wine and put it into old wineskins. And he, of course, is the new wine. And you don't take my gospel and you add me to your religion. Whether your religion is Judaism, Catholicism, Protestantism, or whatever ism you are in. You're not going to add me to it. I'm not a collectible on that journey. And this is why, this is the rock of offense. This is the stumbling. They are stumbled by the message. When Peter says a rock of offense, the message, because they don't want to obey the message. The message is that someone else did all of the work. Someone else did all of the heavy lifting. And so, no, 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 Jesus, surely, you know, I, look how far I've gone. I, 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 I've presented myself, you know, I've, I've lifted myself up out of the mire. And look, I'm doing good. All I need is a bit of you. Just patch me up here, Jesus. Just be the hole, fill the hole in the middle of my heart. No, friends, he doesn't come to be a patch on your life. He does not come to be a part of your life. The Bible says, Christ, who is your life? All of it is in him. There's a humility, there's a humbling of a person to come in and say, oh my goodness me, he's done it all. Jesus paid it all. There's nothing left for me to do. Jesus did it all. All of a sudden, friends, salvation becomes all the more magnificent. Praise becomes all the more rapturous because it comes from a being that had utterly no hope while we were without hope, the Bible says. At the right moment, Christ died. When you were without hope, 
And the reality is, I don't think you can really, really truly understand the depth of salvation until you see how hopeless the situation truly was. I was 12. I remember giving my testimony on, on the street corner in Cove over a microphone preaching and one of my friends came up, well, you, pre- you, you preach now. I'm 12 years of age. Everyone else is preaching, playing. I, I like to play the guitar and hide behind the guitar and sing there. Now you preach now. And I remember standing trembling. There's about six or seven kids my own age, all kind of standing with the stare. You know, at that age, are intimidated. And of course, I wanted to get up and tell everybody how bad a person I was. You know, oh, I was a really bad person before I was saved. And I didn't believe a word of it. I just believed I was a normal kid, you know. But, you know, I'm trying to, you know, jizz up my, my testimony, you know. Like, you know, like you're really bad at 12 years of age, you know. And, uh, and I didn't believe it. But you know what, friends? I believe it now. I didn't believe it. I didn't realize at 12. I understood the love of God. I understood the sin. But I didn't understand the magnitude of my sin, the depth of my sin. Didn't understand that, that without Christ, it, it would, when it was fully grown, it would bring forth death. Didn't realize that what was working in me was something that was going to drag me into the deepest, darkest hell. That was going to transform me into a being that has no resemblance to what God had intended for me. That was what was working in my nature was so adrift that even the noble aspirations of love and fidelity and caring, all those things, I would have no power over had Christ not come and rescued me. Even all my good ideas, they're good on a Sunday, but they evaporate on a Monday. And so there's this battle now that's going on for these young disciples of John here because they're good men, they're religious men. They have the right religion too, by the way. It's not they're in a false religion, the right religion, but this religion, that old covenant was becoming relegated. That old covenant, the Bible says, had a glory that shone from the face of Moses, but was fastly beginning to dim. And now we're coming into the dying moments of Judaism. The dying moments when the revelation that came to the Jewish people in the old covenant, where that glow and that glory was dimming, friends. It was going to come to a place eventually where it was completely gone. Their temple would be torn down. Not one stone left upon another. No more sacrifices of animals. No more sacrifices system. No more priestly system. They have no more means to come in before even their understanding of Jehovah and walking into the presence of God. They have no shed blood. They had it in the old covenant, but you can't even enact it now. And the glory of that covenant was dying. And of course, that was always prophesied because I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Not like the old covenant, a covenant that they broke time and time again. But I will make this new covenant and this is the new covenant in my blood. And Jesus says, I am not the patch. You're not going to take my gospel and pour me into a religious mold. You're not going to take the gospel of Jesus Christ and add him to your Catholicism or your Protestantism or anything else, friends. The gospel stands on its own value, on its own power. And Jesus begins to talk to these young men. You know, we read over the scripture, we, don't, we very little understanding what's taking place there. He's challenging. John the Baptist was the last of the Old Testament prophets of the right religion, of the right God. But it's coming to an end. And so it was going to be difficult to transition from all the time being in this covenant with God, God's covenant, the people, the Jews, live by a certain lifestyle, by certain laws, by certain religious practices. And if we do that, then God will be our God. But all that's ending now. All that has come to its point in history. Where God said that this is my beloved son, hear ye him. The covenant, the, covenant, the old was fastly fading, friends. 
The law had its glory, as we said, but quickly exposed the stark imperfection of humanity. You know, Jesus could have argued with them. I'm, I'm not even into the arguing mode anymore. People come to me and want to challenge the, the liberty of the new covenant. I'm like, you know, just live another five or six years and come back to me and see how far you get with your sense of being able to live a life that is, uh, gives you merit in the presence of God. Jesus could have argued the scripture with these young disciples. They are legalistic Christians. They love to argue scriptures. Oh, it should be the King James first of all. And then, you know, and, and take scriptural references, you know, to support their narrative. He could have argued with these young disciples and said, well, the law of Moses only demands, which is true, uh, fasting once a year at Yom Kippur. But the Jews, in their perseverance of self-righteousness, added fast upon fast upon fast. But the law only required once a year. Interesting. It's amazing, isn't it? Once you start getting into that way of thinking, that you have to do more for God. All of a sudden, you start to add on to these things, make sacred cows out of things that have never been sacred. Jewish tradition had, in its pursuit of self-righteousness, added fast upon fast. And you know what, friends? It's an acid test to the religious man when he is in the presence of the life-giving Christ that he still, in self-belief, seeks his own paltry efforts and that's the reality of it, right? Self-righteous man. Think, well, you know, Jesus is a part of the equation and I'm another part of it. That's a self-righteous man or woman. A righteous man says, no, I can't do it. I could never do it. And someone else steps into history. His name is Jesus Christ. He said, no, you got it. Because that was the purpose of the law all the time. A schoolmaster to bring you to Christ. To bring you to God. By the works of the law. All over the scripture shall no man be justified. The only thing the law could do was show the holiness of God and the failure of people. It was meant to do a work so that when Christ appeared, we'd all go, hallelujah, because I can't do it. Nobody can do it. And so Jesus, in his gentle way, is talking to these men. In his gentleness, he asked these questions about the wedding groom, about the wine, about the cloth. You know, I want to tell you this morning, what can leave a bigger hole in your life is that if you just add Jesus to your life, that's a bigger hole, friends. Oh, I'll do my thing and I'll just bring Jesus on as a collectible. That's going to tear. That Christianity is not going to hold water. It's going to fall apart. It's going to end up breaking and spilling. And you're going to say, oh, I tried Jesus. That didn't work. No, you didn't. You don't try Jesus. You give your life to him. Hallelujah. It's not so much that you give your heart to him as that he gives his heart to you. Of course, I understand the metaphors, but really the reality is that not he doesn't necessarily come into our life, although he does by the Holy Ghost. It's the reality is that we step into his life. That's the reality of the gospel. We step into the life of Christ. We step into the victory of Christ. We step into the righteousness of Christ. We step into the merits of Christ. We step into the glory of Christ. We step into the positions of Christ because we are seated with him at the right hand of God the Father in heavenly places, friends. That's the gospel. 
It's not what you bring. And I understand the natural nature of all of us is straight away to be stumbled. Like these men, to be stumbled. What are you saying? What I'm saying is that you can't, never will, and never can save yourself. There's only one that can transform you. He takes his new wine and he puts it into the new man which the Holy Spirit puts in you. Amen. And makes you and fashions you after himself. Jesus in gentleness spoke to these men and he speaks to you and I in gentleness. Don't try to patch up your life by adding Christ to him. Don't take the truths of the Bible and pour them into your own narrative. That's what a lot of evangelical Christianity is, is taking so much truth but pouring it into a narrative that's not right. It's not lensed correctly. Oh, it's Jesus does a little bit and I do a little bit. That's the old covenant. That's the old way, friends. The inappropriate application of Christ will leave a bigger hole in your life than before. He's either the Lord of all or he's not the Lord at all. When you devise your religious mixture of works and faith, you end up with a pressure that will always cause rupture and spillage, friends. There are many here who embrace what John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, but only believe him to be a missing piece. As I said already, he's not just a piece, he's the entire, He is the whole. He's not just the keeper of the law, he's the author and the fulfiller of the law. Jesus didn't just come to patch up your, your life or religion. He came to bring a new covenant in his blood. He came to bring a new gospel that would stumble men that love religion. He is both the new wine and the new wineskin. The old wineskin of religion will always burst in the light of his glory. Luke 5 recalls the very same story. Luke 5 and verse 39 adds a verse that Matthew doesn't add. And at the end of that same reading for Luke 5, 39, it says, No one who drinks the old wine seems to want the fresh new wine. They say the old is better. See, people, see, the difference between fresh wine and, and, and old wine, old wine is a lot of alcohol in it. People who drink the old wine don't want the fresh wine is what they're saying. And what Jesus is saying, people love to get drunk on religious works. They love to get drunk on how many times they crawled up Crow Patrick, or how many things they've done for God. And they love to stand up in the temple and say, I thank you, God, you haven't made me like other men because I pray five times a day and I give money to the poor and I do this and I do that. No one who hears the new covenant wants to, it's an offense to them. It's a stumbling block. What do you mean, Jesus? You're pitting me the same place as the worst sinner in Cork City. Now you got it. You're saying that I'm as miserable and poor and wretched as the worst of the worst? Absolutely, no better, no worse than them. Exactly the same, relegated, without hope, without excuse, without any hope in your life. Friends, now it may offend you, but it doesn't offend me any longer because I say, God, I've lived long enough to know that if the gospel isn't this true, then no man or woman could stand in the presence of God. No one who drinks the old wine, don't be drinking the old wine. The old wine is how much can I do for God? How can I pay him back? How can I do this? Friends, no, we don't pay back God anything. We out of love. Because when the love of God is shed abroad in our heart, our motivation is love. Amen. And if it's anything other than love, it gets burnt up as hay and stubble and all those things that don't last in eternity. 
How many are out there today and they'll go out and try to win the world for Jesus and their own children are backslidden, their own marriages are falling apart, friends. You know, oh, but they're doing it for God. No, they're not. They're getting drunk on their good works. But there's those who are led by the Spirit of the Lord out of love for the lost, friends. Oh, hallelujah. It's, motivation is everything to God. No one who was, drinks the old wine seems to want the fresh new wine. They are those who intoxicate themselves under religious achievements. They find it hard to enjoy the freshness and the newness of the presence of Christ. They find it's never enough. I tell you, friends, it is everything we need. The terrible arrogance of those legalists is not that they think that they're good enough, but they think that Christ is not enough. That's the awfulness of it. Religious thinking within the evangelical circles, that's the awfulness of it. Christ is enough. And faith in him, friends, will release the virtues of the Holy Spirit in your life. Love, joy, and peace. And if they delay a little bit, it's because God's working on you. Instead of just analyzing every letter, oh, they didn't keep the Sabbath. Oh, they're picking corn, didn't wash their hands. Instead of analyzing every letter of the law in your own life and in others, why not start to enjoy salvation? Why not start to enjoy it when we sing those beautiful hymns, there's nothing left for me to do for Jesus did it all. Why not just for a moment as a Christian say, do you know what, that is, that is the truth of truths. I am standing here. I am the lame that take the prey. I am the one that has no hope, no strength, nothing to bring to the table. I've exhausted all my cards. I've played my last card, as, they, as the gambler would say, and it turned up blank for me. But now, praise God, there's a new covenant in my blood. I have come that you would have life and have it abundantly. Hallelujah. I, don't take me as a part or a patch. Yeah, I, it's all or nothing. It's all of what I have done or it's nothing that I have done. The decision is yours. Some just don't think. They just don't know how to appreciate the bridegroom. He is with you, church, this morning. If you have put your, your sincere faith in him and in his work, if you have confessed your sins to him and repented, if you've called upon the name of the Lord for salvation, then, friends, Christ is your life. And no more second-guessing his love. And don't be like the reluctant bride at the altar. And he comes up and you're running out the door because I didn't quite, I'm not quite presentable today. I want to tell you, you don't present yourself. He presents you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That's the gospel, friends. That's the love of God. And that all of us are end in the same pit, Lord, pit of despair and failure. And Christ comes. He picks us up. He cleans us. Gives us a new robe. Puts his Holy Spirit. Gives us a new name. But surely God, I can do something for you. No. All the way through his gospel. Do you know what he asks us to do? Believe. Believe in what I speak over you. Be of good cheer. Rejoice with me. For the son that was lost is now found. The coin has been restored. He is our peace who has broken down the dividing wall. Get your eyes off of other people and on Christ. And as you look to that Christ, you're going to reveal glory upon glory in your life.
This was the rock of offense, the stumbling block to every religious man, whether they were Jews, Greeks, Romans, pagans. Stumble everybody. I'm not a piece of your life. It's all of my work. I'm not a patch on your religion. I'm not patching up your ideas. You're not going to take my gospel and pour it into your storyline. Because that's the old covenant. And if that be true, the only thing that Jesus accomplished at the Calvary was the salvation of a lot of sheep and cattle. Because you have all the law to keep, friends. We shouldn't even be having church today. We should be having church yesterday. Because yesterday was the Sabbath. Hallelujah. There's nothing left for us to do, friends. Jesus has done it all. The far-reaching implication of this needs to, needs to drop into your soul by revelation of God. Because this is the word of God. This is true, friends. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reality that as you begin to meditate upon what that means will produce within you a shout of praise. It will produce in you a heart of gratitude. It will produce within you a, 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 a confidence. Hallelujah. It might have been your worst morning to come to church. Could have been mine. I'm not going to tell you if it was or wasn't. It could have been anyone's worst morning. But it doesn't change it. He still loves me. He still accepts me. And he still says, I am your life. And I have come that you would have life and have it abundantly. If you can rise above your failure today, if you can rise above the failures of other people and say, this is a truth of truths, let me tell you, the power of that truth will begin to permeate your mindset, your lifestyle, your behavior, because it's a work of God. He who began the good work in you will bring it to completion. Instead of trying to work it out in your head, well, how am I going to overcome my anger? How am I going to overcome my this or my that and the other? Stop worrying. Stop looking at the law, friends, and trust the law of the Spirit of Christ. And Christ Jesus has set me free from the law, sin, and death. Amen. And begin to understand that now you begin to give yourself in faith and the Holy Spirit the third person of the triune God will begin to work it out in you. Oh, but pastor, the Bible says work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but they forget the second part, for it is God who works within you to will and to do his good pleasure. Yield yourself to God again, Christian. Yield yourself with confidence, amen. And when you have failed, and, and we all have failed, and we'll all fall short of the glory of God, we have an advocate with the Father that says, Father, no sin is accounted on their behalf. Hallelujah. No sin is marked against their charge list. Amen. They are my righteousness. I've paid for them. I live in them. I indemnify them. Oh, hallelujah. And when you begin to live in confidence like that, then you can go to him and your worst Sunday on your worst day, you can enter his presence with boldness and go before the throne of grace in boldness. That's what makes the gospel good. That's why it's good news, friends. Because it has completely and utterly checkmated every failure of human flesh and other people around us as well. And gives us that strength and confidence to go in before him. This is my beloved son. This is the gospel. Don't be stumbled with the goodness of God. Some of you have been praying for a rich old aunt and would never believe that you may have one. 
And this sounds like a rich old land story, doesn't it? It's too good to be true. It can't be that easy. It has to be that easy. It has to be that easy. Because I could never, in a hundred lifestyles, stand before God on my own righteousness, add anything to the cross of Jesus, or take anything from it. And so this morning, I put it to you, Christian, lay down your strife. Lay down your worming around and your self-effacing behavior. Oh, I'm not worthy. He has made me worthy. Hallelujah. I'm not worthy to be called your son. <laughs> Kill the fatted calf. Put a ring in his finger. Cover him with a new robe. You know, you, know, you don't seem to see heaven is rejoicing around you and me this morning. Rejoicing over you. And yet we are like the reluctant bride. Oh, how can he love me? I, I, you know, friends, all I know is that he does. And I choose to take it. I choose to believe his word. How many of us in our marriages, our relationships, when the spouse says, I love you, find it hard to receive that love? Don't be like that with Christ. When he says, I love you, just say, God, I don't know how you can. I'm so ugly at times, but I'm going to receive your love. Hallelujah. That love begins to transform. That love begins to empower. That love begins, love lifted me. When nobody but Christ could help, love lifted me. Would you stand this morning? I want us to raise our hands in gratitude to the Lord for such a great salvation. And that's what the Hebrew writer says. I started with that verse. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How, how do we neglect it? By saying it's not enough and I have to add something. That's neglecting it, friends. But if you can raise your hands this morning and begin to just thank the Lord Jesus Christ for his mercy spoken over your life. If you can make that audacious step of faith, Christian... Let me tell you that there's a power that will work within your life and my life. It is the power of the Holy Spirit to do everything that the Bible says will happen. The fruit of God's Holy Spirit will begin to manifest in your life. I want to tell you, friends, that's love, joy, peace, kindness, meekness, gentleness, self-control. God will bring this to pass in your life because salvation is the Lord's plan. Amen. Salvation is the Lord's device. This is his gospel, not mine. I would have done it totally different and it would have never worked, friends, because I would have asked you to do several things that you could have never done. But he asked you nothing other than come and believe. Only believe. Only believe. All things are possible. You know, there's some here this morning, you believe that God can raise the dead, but you cannot believe he loves you because you're constantly failing. That's messed up, friends. You can believe that God loves the worst sinner on that street, and yet you are the righteousness of God, and you can't embrace what he says about you. There's something wrong. That's the reluctant bride, because you're thinking it's about me, what I can do for him. He chose to love you. He created you. He chose to love you. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more, and there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. And if you can settle that in your heart as a Christian, I am accepted. I am loved. I am born again. I'm in a new covenant. I'm not in that old Jewish covenant. Hallelujah. I'm in a new covenant in my blood where God the Father and God the Son covenant for me and I am complete in him. You should have a prayer revelation 
Because if you don't catch this, Christian, you will walk around in sour grapes. You will walk around all the time stumbling over law and other people's failures and your failures. Get your eyes off the disciples. Get your eyes off other things and put your eyes upon Jesus this morning and understand what is going on here. Understand it's a new covenant. Get it into the skull here. It's new. It never happened before. Hallelujah. It didn't exist in antiquity. It was all about you trying to impress God. And now there's no more impressing. Jesus Christ, my Savior, your Savior, has done it all at the cross of Jesus. Come on, raise your hands and worship. Raise a hallelujah this morning. Raise a hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thanks for tuning in with us today. I hope you were blessed. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Cork Church. Also, make sure to like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you have any questions, you can email us, info at corkchurch.com, or just check out our website, www.corkchurch.com. Again, thanks for tuning in, and see you next time. God bless.